Hey, a quick note before we dive into tonight's topic. Over the past 10 plus years, nostalgia music, or more specifically, the musical subgenre known as synthwave, has become big business and taken on a life of its own. I found its origins and its rise to prominence a fascinating story. While this episode will be a very different format than the other episodes, I think the story fits well into the genre of our podcast. I know my hardcore 80s fans will love it. Hopefully, anyway. But judge for yourself. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you enjoy Riding the Synthwave. What do 80s horror movies, Ryan Gosling, a Miami-themed video game, and French composers have in common? They are all the proud parents of a musical genre. More accurately, they are the key ingredients to a fresh yet classic sound currently coming of age and skyrocketing up the musical charts. Join us as we ride the synthwave. Welcome to DeLorean Nights, a podcast that travels back in time on a road trip across America. Join us as we explore unique destinations and navigate the amazing stories, people, and events that came to define them. I know there are many subgenres of synthwave, but for the sake of this story, I'm going to remain at a relatively basic level. As the host of a popular musical podcast, SynthZone, categorizes it, any type of music that elicits nostalgia fits into this category. Deep dive into Reddit threads if you really want to pursue all of the offspring. There you can find Venn diagrams and everything you need to know on the subgenres. In the introductory episode of this podcast, we discussed the importance of the 1980s in the American lexicon. They represented a massive collision of technology, mass marketing, and economic excess. Up until then, our culture had not been bombarded by marketing techniques surging into every facet of our lives. When it did happen, we soaked it up like a sponge. Everything was new. Everything was big. Now that we have some distance from the time period, people yearn for the comfort and nostalgia of a better time. An artist known as Megadrive one of the biggest names in Synthwave, recalls his childhood. Quote, That whole time in my life was pretty magical, as everything was still new and big. End quote. The Observer Online magazine may have put it best. Perhaps the answer is that simple. 80s pop culture was plainly, well, badass. Vibrant, oversaturated, chest-thumping, and Synthwave's blending of modern electronic composition with nostalgia makes for an irresistible combination, end quote. Another theory behind the popularity of the 1980s is that it represented a crossroads of so many cultural trends, especially in technology. Quote, the 80s were the final years before technology snatched us in its inescapable grip, temporarily dialing back to a time when technology was a controllable beast and robots were just a wild prediction, end quote. In a way, the future was arriving by the 1980s, and it was scary and exciting all at once. 
A popular synth composer notes, quote, The 80s represent a clash of optimism and pessimism. A fascination with flying cars and robotic dog walkers tinged with a dark apprehension about what's to come, end quote. That's also why the synthwave genre is distinctly divided into two core conceptual aspects. One, quote, a romanticized vision of carefree summer days spent on the boardwalk, at the beach, or at your favorite video arcade. The songwriting captures an idealized mental image of the 80s. It's the musical manifestation of a vintage postcard that says, come to LA in pink letters, above an image of a crowded beach with people on surfboards and roller skates, end quote. The other vision, a science fiction-based eerie and ominous journey through dystopian future of neon lights, dubious robots, and desolate landscapes. Some would argue that the confluence of these two concepts is what makes Synthwave Synthwave. The ever-shifting balance of optimism for a better future through technology, with the pessimism that technology would destroy us all, is what great Synthwave can capture. What results is a pleasurable minimalism of synthetic tones and an atmosphere perfect for a nighttime drive through a neon-lit city. But what is odd and amazing about this up-and-coming genre and the 80s nostalgia industry in general is that a large portion of its fans were not yet alive during its heyday. They craved the vibe and atmosphere of a time period they never experienced. A common comment on internet threads is, quote, I'm nostalgic for the 1980s, even though I wasn't even alive for them, end quote. One potential reason? Reruns. The outpouring of television and movies from this time period is so pervasive that they remain in the regular cable rotation. Even in current entertainment, the influence of these 1980s icons is blaringly prevalent. The current creators of our entertainment grew to adolescence during the wave of programming considered the golden age of 80s glory. The nostalgia for their youth can't help but seep through their own modern work. Roots to any musical genre are deep, interweaving, and have many facets. If we addressed every single person and event that contributed to the rise of Synthwave, this episode would be the length of a Dan Carlin show. Instead, we're going to highlight a few of the major and most interesting influences. Again, for a deeper dive into the history of Synthwave, check out the annals of Reddit and YouTube. Modern musicians have been using synthesizers to push the limits of their sound since the mid-1960s. This technology became available to the world because a physics and music graduate befriended an electrical engineer. Wendy Carlos and Bob Moog were the perfect fit. Carlos recalls, quote, He was a creative engineer who spoke music. I was a musician who spoke science. It felt like a meeting of simpatico minds, like he was my older brother, perhaps. End quote. Wendy produced musical tracks with Moog's engineered electronic synthesizer. The development of modern electronics made it possible to recreate music from its component parts, its tones. Well, you're looking at uh, one of the very first 8-track machines. We used it for switched on Bach, well-tempered synthesizer, right through a uh, good half of Clockwork Orange. 
Wendy Carlos in her studio in Greenwich Village is one of the pioneers of synthesized sound. Her controversial versions of the classics, created entirely electronically, put machine-made music on the map. By 1970, Moog's constant tinkering finally resulted in an affordable and widely distributed synthesizer, the Mini Moog. Heavy use of the synthesizer was first embraced by composers like Giorgio Morador and psychedelic rock groups like Tangerine Dream. Synthesizers would not only come to represent the new musical genre of EDM, but they would infiltrate almost every existing genre, from pop to disco to hip-hop and R&B. As I said, the first uh, instruments that we made were experimental instruments, and we actually made them to order. Every musician had a different reaction. Some were scared to death, some were tickled uh, that they had, they had all this experimental capability. Some listeners were enthralled with the new sounds, and some listeners were shocked at the difference, at the strangeness of it all. The media of the time played up that strangeness aspect. It just looked good on, you know, in a newspaper or on television to sort of uh, make it something more spectacular and more different than it was. In addition to their own recording success, these artists also earned acclaim for their work on motion picture soundtracks. Morador had classics like Top Gun and Flashdance under his belt, while Tangerine Dream would compose the soundtrack to Risky Business and the noir crime classic Thief. While the synthesizers were the primordial soup leading one day to Synthwave, it was their use in motion picture soundtracks that led to their direct descendants. It's often said that necessity is the mother of invention. Through the 1980s, New wave and art house directors, desperate to get their visions filmed on minuscule budgets, turned to the synthesizer. It was a cheap, fast, and quick way to score a movie, but it could also sound grand and atmospheric. Obviously, Hollywood's B-movies were the ones that were always trying to stretch a dollar, and B-movies were often the horror, action, and sci-fi genre. One such notable director was John Carpenter, Carpenter directed dozens of cult classics throughout the 70s and 80s. He is the genius behind Halloween, as well as other cult favorites like The Thing, Big Trouble in Little China, The Fog, and Escape from New York. In addition to his directing duties, Carpenter composed most of his film's scores. He recalls his use of synthesizers for his early films in an interview. Quote, it was an ability for one person, me, who's cheap, to sound bigger than he actually is, to double, triple, and quadruple track these sounds. That's why I did it." End quote. He also noted his love for the electric scores of early science fiction films. He often laughs at the ancient technology he used in these early films, recalling the wooden pins to change frequency and tube amps that required old-fashioned instrument tuning prior to their use. All of this seems archaic compared to the push-button synthesizers of today. But as Carpenter's fame grew along with his budgets, he still scored his movies with synthesizers. Quote, synthesizers are so transcendent. You know that you're listening to an electric sound. You know that. But if you can make it musical, if you can arrange it orchestrally, then it adds a different layer. End quote. Carpenter's most transformative theme would be the ominous, goosebump-inducing soundtrack of Halloween, a simple minimalist electronic keyboard tune that
that continues to haunt viewers 40 years after its initial release. John Carpenter was just a few years out of USC film school when he composed it to add melodic malevolence to his classic Halloween. It's that sort of repetition and the audience is kind of waiting for something to change. It's putting you on uh, your nerves. Uh, like, what is going on? Let, let's get this thing changing. Come on now, stop this repeating over and over and over. <laughs> it's driving me crazy. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> Despite the iconic film scores of these early atmospheric synth works, the electronic genre shifted to a more upbeat techno and dance music by the 1990s. But the seeds to synthwave were planted in these B-movie classics. These seeds would remain buried for many years. Eventually, talented artists would harvest them. Oddly enough, though these films came from Hollywood, the most American of institutions, it took a group of young French, Canadian, and Swedish musicians to unleash their potency on the world in the mid-2000s. These French house artists, like Daft Punk, College, and Kavinsky, to name some of the notables, began creating sounds inspired by the legendary film scores of the 80s B-movies they grew up worshipping. Daft Punk, the most famous of all artists we'll mention tonight, released their second album characterized by a retro 80s vibe. Daft Punk has since skyrocketed to A-list status, with multiple top 100 hits and collaborations with music's royalty. Not many would consider Daft Punk to be part of the synthwave movement, but their ascension and tutelage left an opportunistic wake for the others to take advantage of. College was a French art house composer that used an 80s aesthetic to create a unique sound. His vision for the sound was an effort to, quote, synthesize into his music the emotions of his childhood, which was greatly influenced by American 80s pop culture, end quote. Finally, we've got Kavinsky, whose origin story is strange, mysterious, and almost perfect for this genre. Before he became Kavinsky, he was just a guy named Vincent, an unsuccessful French actor who made ends meet through manual labor. He recalls breaking walls, painting, and preparing orders for Amazon. That kind of stuff. But a friend of his gave him his old Mac computer destined for the garbage heap. He figured Vincent could use it to play video games, his favorite pastime. It just so happened the Mac was loaded with electronic music, and so Vincent started to dabble. The friend that gave him the Mac was a film director, and Vincent had appeared in a few of his films. Vincent's electronic music would soon appear in his director friend's films. Vincent gave a few interviews with music magazines prior to the debut of his highly anticipated album, but he has a nonchalance in these interviews, and it's difficult to tell whether he's speaking the truth or fooling around. It's a jarring immaturity. Despite making music, Vincent swears he's not a musician. Musicians understand notes. They can read sheet music. They can play the piano. Vincent can't do any of these things, but what he can do is sputter out all of the pop culture he absorbed from his youth. Quote, Pong, all the Nintendos, all the Segas, the Goonies, Back to the Future, G.I. Joe, the Spielberg movies, and then actually like a lot scarier movies. I'm truly a sponge. 
When I watch something and I like it, it stays inside me. And at one time it comes back. End quote. After years of making admittedly terrible music, he began to figure things out. That is when his alter ego was born. To Vincent, Kavinsky isn't just a stage name, but a character he is playing. And this character's story unfolds through his music. It's a bizarre and confusing story, but it goes something like this. In 1986, a teenage Vincent was cruising in a red Ferrari Testarossa on a thunderous night along a ragged coast when he was involved in a fiery crash. This crash somehow fuses Vincent's soul with the car, and he emerges as a zombie, yearning for his lost love and a desire to create electronic music. His first major breakthrough song, Night Call, is about how Kavinsky tries to contact his lost love only to find out she's moved on. Kavinsky has fun with this alter ego, once answering an interview question about his background, quote, I come from nowhere and I'm already dead, end quote. Your sound is, very, is much like exploitation cinema from the 80s. Did you come from a soundtrack background? No, 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 I come from uh, nowhere and um, I'm already dead. He even describes the difference between Vincent and Kavinsky, quote, we are very similar, but you can say he is a little bit more badass than me. We make the perfect balance, except he's a little shyer, yet also more badass. He's maybe the guy I wanted to be, along with a way for me to make music." End quote. The influence of movies never falters, as he explained that his album Outrun could be a story within a film. Quote, it was for me better to invent a story or something to create music about. It was truly helpful for me to imagine this like a movie, to have that kind of idea in my head, and what kind of music I can do for it." End quote. Despite Kavinsky prowling the electronic scene along with his French compatriots, gaining footing in the industry through the guidance of Daft Punk, Synthwave remained a fringe, if not unnamed, subgenre. But as it was born from the synthetic soundtracks of the Hollywood B-roll, it would return to the silver screen from whence it came, and this return would send it into another stratosphere. A young and upcoming Danish director was just breaking into Hollywood. Nicholas Reffin had a popular crime trilogy under his belt, as well as some film festival honors for directing Hollywood A-lister Tom Hardy in a deranged role as a mentally ill and savagely violent prisoner, Charles Bronson. For his Hollywood premiere, he was working with similar firepower. Ryan Gosling, an up-and-coming Hollywood it-boy, was given the starring role as a Hollywood stuntman who moonlights as a getaway driver. This was Reffin's highly acclaimed 2011 film, Drive. In the opening shot, he stands in a dark room, gazing out the window, telling the other line on the phone, quote, There's a hundred thousand streets in this city. You don't need to know the route. You give me a time and a place. I give you a five minute window. Anything happens in that five minutes and I'm yours. No matter what. Anything happens a minute either side of that and you're on your own. Gosling was known for his iconic steel gaze and brooding blue eyes. He could deliver a deep and complex performance in a scene without speaking a single word. The uncanny ability to smolder on the screen would blend perfectly with Reffin's style. As a product of the 80s, Reffin describes his vision for Drive as neon noir, 
quote, I wanted to make a movie about automobiles, but with an 80s European electronic score, as that is quite different from what most people would expect, end quote. Refn's vision isn't a nostalgic trip to the past, since it's set in modern times, but the characters represent heroes and villains of a fading era, old school tough guys navigating in a town that had gone soft. What happened to all the ashtrays in this town? Brian Cranston's character asks an old friend as he tries to extinguish a cigarette he's no longer allowed to smoke. Nighttime Los Angeles is front and center in reference film, as Gosling stares out into an array of downtown skyline shots, or the Pacific Ocean on his many rides to various underworld locations. Quote, The opening title sequence sets a tone for the rest of the film in terms of style and aesthetics. End quote. As Gosling takes his night drive, his face moves in and out of the shadows. Slow tracking footage of a neon LA cityscape sprawl across the screen, serving to, quote, transform the city into a stylized maze of lines and shadows, end quote. The only sound during these opening credits is Kavinsky's night call, echoing out in all of its electronic glory. The soft synthesizer chords layered with the heavier ones serve as a perfect soundtrack to Gosling's nighttime cruise. The heavily muffled and distorted vocals set the atmosphere of a brooding nighttime Los Angeles that is both dangerous and alluring at the same time. The chorus then comes in, quote, arresting to the ears because it is both familiarly pleasing and unlike anything you've heard before. The sweet, high-pitched female vocals and piercing synthesizer loop almost make the song seem like something out of the future rather than a throwback to the 1980s, end quote. This is the moment that Synthwave reaches its ascension into American popular culture. Most Synthwave artists and fans cite this iconic sequence in Drive as their first introduction to the genre. Though Night Call by Kavinsky is the crown jewel, the soundtrack to Drive is ripe with celebrated Synthwave tracks, including the classic tune Real Hero by College. Overall, Drive was lauded by fans and critics alike. The style, the colors, the vibe and especially the sound. The movie's success would propel Kavinsky into fame, and he would later put Night Call into his debut album, titled Outrun. This album, as if Drive Alone weren't enough, would cement Kavinsky's status as a founding father of the popular new genre. Unsurprisingly, the success of the film would spawn imitations and tributes. Surprisingly, the next viral hit and accompanying soundtrack wasn't a movie, but a video game. But if you think about it, it's not that surprising at all, given the audience. The first generation to grow up with video games was speaking to a generation totally immersed in the digital frontier. Only a year after Drive hit theaters, a pair of Swedish developers released a nostalgia-packed video game titled Hotline Miami. This was a, quote, pixelated, ultra-violent, surreal thriller and score attack game rich with pulsing dream imagery, mythic coked-out 80s Miami aesthetics, Lynchian mystery, and laser-colored viscera, end quote. You 
enter a dark, bug-infested room where you're met by three masked strangers. You don't remember who you are or the horrific things you've done, but the woman in the horse mask thinks your psyche may be better off not knowing. Dressed like a Russian mobster, the owl hates your presence and doesn't know you. Accompanying the retro and violent gameplay was a 22-track soundtrack of up-and-coming synthwave artists. It was heralded as the best soundtrack in the history of video games. Fans clamored for a physical vinyl version. A Kickstarter campaign began and quickly reached its goal. A sequel to the game, Hotline Miami 2, Wrong Number, followed in 2015, its soundtrack equally worshipped. Many of the artists featured would rocket to notoriety. Now you massacre without rhyme or reason while trying to uncover the mystery behind the phone messages, the masked figures, and the undeniable passion you have for slaughter. Have fun. Hotline Miami was not the only game title to have this effect. The Far Cry series embraced the synth with its third incarnation, Far Cry 3 Blood Dragon. It is the near future. The apocalypse has had an apocalypse. A rogue cyborg army is reshaping the world into cyber hell. And only one thing can stop them. Let's show them how cyber commandos get it done. Quote, Every aspect of the game and its related material, from its retro-futuristic and over-the-top concept, neon-soaked promo artwork, 80s throwback cartoon trailer, and soundtrack from Synthwave Stalwart's Power Glove represents the genre in all of its glory. End quote. Sergeant Rex Colt is leading the battle between good and evil, as it's never been fought before. He's on a desperate mission to bring down a battalion of ruthless killer cyborgs and save the world. Lights out, Rex. Michael Bean is Sergeant Rex Power Cult in this year's most thrilling, action-packed cyber adventure. Far Cry 3, Blood Dragon. As what inevitably happens with any popular subgenre, it eventually bleeds to the mainstream. Titans of the music industry began to take notice. Artists trained in synthwave were brought on as consultants and producers for today's leading acts in pop, rock, and R&B. One of rock music's greatest acts out of England, Muse, went heavy synthwave in their latest album, Simulation Theory. The album cover is reminiscent of an 80s movie poster, and the lead single includes heavy synth chords and a music video featuring a nighttime car chase through a retro-futuristic cyberspace landscape. The Black Eyed Peas feature synthwave visuals in a 2019 music video, and even Taylor Swift cashed in on the trend in her 2019 album. One of her tracks, The Archer, is, quote, just a hair's breadth away from being fully classifiable as a synthwave song or more specifically, as part of Synthwave's dreamy, down-tempo subgenre, Deep Wave, end quote. In perhaps the best adaptation from a mainstream artist, R&B star The Weeknd went full Synthwave in his 2020 album, After Hours, with sprawling and glorious Synthwave beats. The album is regarded as a, quote, 
nostalgic palette of shape-shifting synth workouts, tactile minimalism, and splashes of drum and bass, and UK garage, end quote. But to his hardcore fans, Weekend's embracing of the synthwave is not surprising, as one of his earlier popular tracks was a remix of a song by the godfather himself, Kavinsky. Whether Kavinsky directly aided in The Weeknd's music is not known, but his fingerprints are all over his latest sound. The Weeknd even created a character featured in not only his music videos, but his live performances as well. Fans claim that if the music videos and live performances are viewed in order of their release, there is an overarching narrative for his character. In an ode to one of the kings of the 1980s, The Weeknd dons a red jacket, complemented with a black dress shirt, black tie, and black pants. He has no name, just the man in red. The story of the man in red goes something like this. He arrives in Las Vegas for a raging night of drug and alcohol-fueled hedonism, but his party becomes a downward spiral into madness, told over the course of four videos and several live performances. As he moves from feeling the harsh effects of a weekend bender to a physical beating at the hands of local thugs, the man in red dons a bandage across his broken nose. The blood smeared across his face is poorly concealed by his sunglasses. By the final video, the man in red has black gloves and a sharp knife, stalking a frightened starlet through a nightclub. The video is an obvious ode to the classic slasher films of the 70s and 80s, the same classic films that often feature a heavily synthesized musical score. His full-length album, After Hours, debuted at number one on the Billboard music charts and continues to shatter all types of records on the way. He became the first artist to rank number one simultaneously on the Billboard 200, Hot 100, Artist 100, Hot 100 Songwriters, and Hot 100 Producer charts. A final example of Synthwave's arrival into mainstream American households includes the slow pan-out of red letters against a pitch-black background. This eerily paced reveal is accompanied by ominous electric synthesizer music. As the camera moves outward, the message of the letters come together, revealing the show's title, Stranger Things. The smash hit Netflix series is a love letter to everything 80s pop culture, so naturally, the music for its opening credits would be no different. The explosion of Synthwave into mainstream culture both excites and worries the hardcore fans. Purists fear that the genre is being too watered down by fakeness and generic reproductions by people trying to cash in on the latest craze. Synthwave is dead. Long live Synthwave, bemoans a blogger and a fan. He considers the current landscape a wasteland. Quote, the archetypal sound of the genre are gone a fading snapshot of nostalgic music pining for a decade that began 40 years ago. There is, of course, an army of mediocre and worse artists still attempting to mimic the sounds of early synthwave music, though the likelihood of another great Outrun album manifesting at this point is effectively non-existent. End quote. However, this same writer goes on to acknowledge that good stuff is still being produced. It's just getting harder to weed through the noise. With the most talented people in music now turning their talents toward the synthwave genre, the next decade can be amazing. The same pessimistic blogger admits, quote, For those willing to embrace the change, synthwave is not only alive and well, but thriving. 
end quote. What is Synthwave's future? Can it go any higher? Will nostalgia for the 80s eventually reveal itself to be a fad? Should we look to the past for clues? My take is, who cares? Enjoy the ride while it lasts. Special thanks to Van Voorst Films for producing this podcast. Until next time. Thank you for listening to WDNXM. This concludes tonight's broadcast from The Triangle in Hoboken, New Jersey. Portions of what you just heard were previously recorded and transcribed. On behalf of the entire staff, we wish you a good night. This is WDNXM signing off. And now, our national anthem.